Hey, just an, an addendum to what Liz was saying about Ukraine uh, is that also there are several C3 churches in both Ukraine and Russia who are uh, in harm's way at the moment and are also providing support and uh, in, in many ways physical, spiritual and everything over there. And uh, can I also commend Liz on her, her encouragement to pray for us. Uh, especially for increase, but please be specific. Ever since Liz has been praying, I've gained three kilos. <laughs> so, <laughs> you've got to be careful what sort of increase you're looking for, and let me tell you, that's not one of them. So, <laughs> so we've talked throughout February about the importance of community, which I'm really pleased to see has sort of filtered down into what you know people before me are talking about. I mean, Kirsty sort of almost stole one of my scriptures, and it's it's good to get into it. Nathan, I'm not too sure of. He, he that communion message made me feel a bit guilty. I'm thinking, what what ways have I betrayed God lately? It's 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 actually good to think uh, in ways like that. I think because it it uh, encourages us to see that we can actually do things without realising them and actually offend God. But the great thing is, and I'm going to be talking about this later, the great thing is that all God wants from us is repentance. And so I'm going to talk about that in terms of community a bit later on. But we've talked about, we started off discussing God's plan for community and how he'd planned out how this community was going to go and how that went really, really well for all of one page. Uh, we looked at the key purposes of community, including the idea of that we need to be a community that takes risks. But today I want to look at the idea of community activities and attitudes that are not only, not only acceptable to us, because who knows, that we tend to congregate in communities where we agree with what needs to be done. But I, I want to look at the idea of, you know, we're physical members of this community and we, we do what pleases us, but is what we're doing pleasing God, who is the originator and the head of our faith community. In other words, to ask the question, is what we are doing pleasing to God? Now, I don't know about you, but that is a dangerous question to ask. Dangerous in several ways, because who knows that we're all individuals here as part of this community. And let me tell you that every individual here has an idea of what is pleasing to God that is different from everybody else's. And in fact, I bet all of you here can point to somebody here and say, well, I don't think they're pleasing God. And if you're doing that, just remember, look at how many fingers are pointing back. And so we've got that. We've got, you know, every person has their own opinion. And if we can get past that and become a united faith community, then we have the problem that every faith community looks at every other faith community and says, what a load of rubbish. They're not doing it right. And so even then, you know, perhaps we can get a few faith communities. We can organise something like C3, where we're, we're a united faith community. Then we have opinions about non-faith communities. We have opinions about the world, the enemy. No, they're not. And so there's, there's a difficulty in how we perceive what pleases God. So let's start off with something that we know pleases God that addresses that very issue. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, How good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. 
It's like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Didn't know you were wearing a robe. It's if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life evermore. So God's into unity. Now, okay, from the community that we looked at over the last few weeks, the one that dominates uh, much of the beginning of the Old Testament, which is the community in the wilderness, we can see that there are quite a few things that they've managed to sort of get into their lifestyle that don't please God. And so let's, let's look at a few of those. Uh, Exodus chapter 17, verse 5. Now, this is, this is where the, the, Moses has led them out of Egypt the, the Pharaoh's chariots are gone. They're wandering around in the desert. They're free, and suddenly they realize there's no water. So the first thing they do is, is they complain to Moses. Why have you brought us out here to die of starvation? We could have been happy slaves back in Egypt. And so Moses goes to God, and in verse 5, The Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and called some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Nothing wrong here. Perfect example of God providing for his people through his elected representative. But interestingly, this isn't the only time this happens. If we look in Numbers 20, we see a similar situation arises where the people get to a place, there's no water, and again, the Lord said to Moses, Numbers 20 verse 7, you and Aaron must take the staff, the staff again, and assemble the entire community. As people watch, speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. Sounds almost exactly the same, doesn't it? But something happens here which changes the complexion of the interaction between God and his representative, which has quite detrimental outcomes. In verse 10, it says, Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? And then Moses raised his hand, struck the rock twice with the staff, and water gushed out. And so the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. Everybody's happy, right? Except, once again, God's provided for his people. But if we read on in verse 12, it says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, I'm a bit ticked with you, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I'm giving them. Ouch. One tiny mistake and Moses is banished from the promised land. You see, we can see here that God is not pleased when we who represent God try to take God credit for God's actions, for a start, distort what God says, stop listening to God and assume that we know how God operates. Because Moses did all of those things. First he grandstanded, called them all rebels and showed them that who, was, who was boss. Then God had asked him to speak to the rock, but he tapped it with his rod because that's what had happened the first time. And so he, he got complacent. He wasn't listening to God. He was doing what he thought he knew to do because he'd done it before. And so he assumed that he knew how God operated. All, 
Now, I know you're all looking at me thinking, wow, you're in trouble. God's representative here. Uh, I just want to remind you that under the new covenant, we're all representatives of God here, not just me. And so we have to make sure that we are not caught up in the same things that Moses got caught up in there. Another example of the importance of having sincere and genuine reasons behind what we do, rather than the importance of the mechanics of what we, what we actually do, is shown in Amos. And I think Kirsty covered this really well this morning. Where God says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So it's not about, as Kirsty said, the lights, the technical issues. It's actually about us coming together and diligently seeking God's face. To pretend to worship God and to show off for other people offends God. He ignores our going through the motions churchianity and expects a genuine community lifestyle of righteous and just living. It's very quiet in here. Do we have to get it right all the time? No. I'm not sure I'd want to live in that community. But we need to be making sure that we're checking what, where we're going and what we're doing and asking ourselves that question, is this pleasing God? Are we doing this for the glory of God? Are we, are we making God part of our decisions? Are we including him in our midst? To get a real handle on what pleases God, let's, let's look at the events that really excited Jesus. Because Jesus got quite passionate about a few things when he saw people either reacting to his presence or whether he just saw, observed them in everyday life. Like in Mark chapter 12, you remember the story about the widow. Jesus and his disciples are sitting at the temple watching who's putting money in the, well, it wasn't a basket, but um, in the, in the uh, temple offering. And it says, then a poor widow came, dropped in two small coins. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, come, come, look, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she Poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. And he's excited by this. Matthew chapter 8, verse 7. He's confronted, this Jesus is confronted by an officer of the Roman guard. Now, who knows, the Jews and the Romans didn't get on. What have the Romans ever done for us? You know how the story goes. But this centurion comes to, to Jesus and says, My son is sick, will you heal him? Speaking of people who are ambivalent towards you and may not have your best interests at heart. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. You sort of think, wow, even if that was the end of the story, that's, that's pretty amazing. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. Oh, it was his servant in this one. It was his son in another one. I apologize for the misinterpretation. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go. I only need to say come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, 
I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Whoa. And then there's that famous story in Luke chapter 5 where we've got the paralyzed man on the mat. And verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they got creative. They went up on the roof, took off some tiles and lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. And we know the rest of the story. The Pharisees got a bit upset by that. And, but he could see the thing that excited him was the, these guys were so confident about what was going to happen. They peeled tiles off the roof and lowered him down. So we can see examples of people here who are strong enough in their faith to know that God provides everything they need. Who understand the authority of God or who are insanely confident in God's healing power. And Jesus is excited to witness all of these things. So what is it that connects the very different actions of these and many other people Jesus came into contact with? This is not a rhetorical question. What connects all of these people? I think faith. They exercised their faith. And we, we all should know this. Hebrews 11.6 it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So what pleases God? No. It is impossible to please God without faith. But it's not faith that pleases God. It's a bit like saying that without tires, my car won't drive. But it's not tires that get you interested in a car unless you're Brett and other people really keen on cars it's actually where the car can take you but without tires you can't get there so it's not faith that pleases God it's what we do with our faith that pleases God and we can't do what pleases God unless we have the faith to actually do it because who knows we can do things that we know please God but if you're not doing it without faith with faith sorry God is not pleased. And so it's not our faith. Our faith is essential to pleasing God. But it's not just faith that pleases God. I know plenty of people with faith who don't do a thing. They have faith that the world's going to end and they're going to heaven. Yep, that's about it. But we need to do something with our faith. Going to a prayer meeting won't win you any points with God. But diligently seeking him in that meeting pleases him. Coming to worship this morning doesn't impress God unless you truly worship this morning with a Romans 12 attitude that our bodies are a living and holy sacrifice. And that wasn't hard to do this morning. I think the atmosphere this morning made it so easy to slip into the presence of God. If we were diligently seeking him. Reading the word of God, or listening to it preached for that matter, without faith that it is bread for our lives, and then eating of that to produce real change does not please God. I might read that one again, no. The other thing that Jesus is passionate about is repentance. Matthew 4.17 says, from then on Jesus began to preach 
Repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of God is near. And that's the basis for our salvation when we recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ, which causes us to repent of our sins and turn to God. And although this is something we do to mark the point at which a person makes that choice to follow Jesus, it also becomes, or it should become, a lifestyle for all followers of Christ. This is something we do every day. So I don't know about you, but when I, when I got saved, my, my life of sin did not end there. Sorry to say. And so God has provided his grace and mercy of repentance because he knows that every day we stuff up. And all he asks is that every day we repent. 1 Timothy 1.15, I think, you know, Paul gets it painfully right here. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. And I am the worst of them all. Do I get an amen? (laughs) But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize too that they can believe in him and receive eternal life. You've got, you've got to have enough humility to get up and say, well, I'm a great example because if God can use me, he can use anyone. When I got saved, I, I mean, I've got to admit, my first thought was that God's got a good one here. <laughs> Not much wrong with me. I, I'm pretty sure that God can use me in, in great ways. And uh, God made it pretty clear very quickly that I was not the genius he was looking for. I had to learn that my only, my only tray, my only skill that pleased God was my ability to do what he asked, however badly I did it, and to actually do what he asked me to do over the years that I've been following him. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes he tells you to do something and it doesn't tell you anything for 20 years. And you ask yourself, am I still supposed to be doing what God asked me to do? And you have to live your life with an open hand. Saying to God, well, if if it isn't what you want, then take it. Because I'm not holding on to it. But if you're not going to tell me anything different, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And that's not like he's been totally silent. It's not not like talk to the hand. (laughs) He's hinted that I'm going in the right direction. But just not to get too full of myself that I'm actually doing what he wants me to do as well as he wants me to do it. And so, you see, that's why I think God is more interested in, in us pursuing a repentant life rather than a sinless life. Oof, I know that sounds a bit like heresy. But I'm sure, I'm, no, don't get me wrong, I'm sure God would rather we didn't sin. But he's a realist. He created us. He knows us intimately. He knows our intimate secrets, and if he knows my secrets, he knows your secrets, he knows we sin. Just me? Oh, good. Okay. Um, But see, Paul says it's there. We are sinners, and God is merciful when we repent of our sin. But we struggle with the term sinner. It's not something, you know, we don't like name tags. You know, we we could all get church name tags so people knew who we were, and we could have sinner, Chris. It just doesn't have that, that cool feel to it, really, does it? 
And so we actually struggle with this, this term sinner, even though we know we are sinners, but in a life with God that we can repent. But the world absolutely hates the word sinner. I think the real danger in the world, and also within the church, is that rather of repenting of our sins, we're redefining our sins. After all, if we convince enough people that our difficulty with God's statutes is not actually sin, then guess what? We don't have to repent. And this means that everybody can feel good about themselves because they're not sinning, so there's no need for repentance. Let me tell you, if we as a faith community fall into this trap, then God is not served or pleased. Let me leave you with a story. John chapter 8 contains the story of Jesus interacting with a rather ugly crowd who've brought a woman caught in adultery before him for judgment. And in this story, he delivers two messages. One communal and one personal. To the community she lived in, he spoke these words. All right, let the one who has no sin throw the first stone. And guess what? How many stones were thrown? None. But to her, his last words as an individual to her were, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. As a faith community, I think our greatest attributes should be mercy and grace. As an individual within that community, we should be allowing God's work in us to lead us to repentance every day as we diligently seek him now have I set too high a standard for a faith community here are people sitting out there thinking oh, wow there's no way we could live up to that it sounds a bit some of the things he said sound as though they could be a bit controversial if we dug into them well yes they probably could be but the point is that as individuals a community grows changes develops moves and so when we look at community, as we have been all month, we need to recognise that our community is living and dynamic, that it's changing and morphing as people come in. Everybody who comes into a community makes a change to that community. And you, you all, we all have a choice whether the change we make is good or bad, whether it's positive or negative. Now some people come into communities with great need and hopefully that community can help with that need and change things. So if you have needs, don't feel bad about coming into a community. The initial contact with the community could be negative. You've come in with baggage and burdens, but that's what a community is for, to help with those things. But the purpose of that is to turn us around. There's that saying that you know, God loved us so much that he died for us as we are. But when we accept him as our Lord and Saviour, he loves us enough not to leave us where he found us. And he wants us to change and move on. And as a community, our relationships with one another need to be geared to making that happen. But as individuals, we also have to be tied into God and have a personal responsibility to our God to change as those individuals to become a part of that community that's moving it forward, bringing it closer to God, making it more united 
making it more relevant, make, giving it greater impact in the society that we live inside of. And so it's not a set of rules, it's not a set of what we should be doing. It's a challenge. Jesus has let us know what excites him about the church community that he started. God has let us know some of the problems that we might face that upset him a little. And knowing that, guess what? We can avoid them. Some of them, we, uh, let's face it, some of them we're going to go through. But knowing those things about us as individuals and us as a community will get us through anything the world can throw at us. But the key, of course, is that connection we have with Jesus. And so, like we do every Sunday, I want to make a, an invitation right now. If you're here online or in person, you can make a decision today to ch- turn your life around, to actually do that word that we, we mentioned, repent. Repent means two things, to be sorry and to turn around, to realise you're going the wrong way and to actually make an effort to turn and go the right way. And we do that by accepting that we are not Lord of our own life, but we have a Lord and Saviour in Jesus Christ who wants to be in control of our life, if we'll let him. And to do that, we need to make a declaration that we are that person, that person of faith, that person of humility that is going to allow Jesus to come into our life, to lead us into places that we can't even imagine, that are better than we can even dream. And so if you're online and you want to take that step, that step of repentance, then press the raise hand button in the chat and one of our team will get together with you uh, privately. It won't be a public discussion. And they will help you take the next step to accepting Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and repenting and moving on to a path with him at the centre of your life. And if you're here this morning, I would personally love to do the same thing, to pray with you, to help you move your life into a a new arena with God at its centre. And so after the service, I'll be standing here for five or ten minutes. And if you would like to come and talk to me about that, pray with, with me about accepting Jesus into your life, then please do.